This morning I thought, what blessed we are. The homeless people, people in New Guinea. We just get up in the morning, have breakfast and have a shower. People have got no water. It really touched me this morning. We should be so thankful every morning when we get up out of bed. Now our Bible reading, 2 Samuel, it's on page 231 if you would like to read it, do it in your Bible. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his bloodstained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor, we, nor do we have the rights to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel. Let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gobiah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Ammoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Eiah's daughters, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merib, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Brazila, the Mahamanite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed and exposed them on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first day of harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds of the air touch them, by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Aiah's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabez, Gilead. They had taken them secretly from the public square at Bashan, where the Philistines had hung them before they struck Saul down at Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father, Kish at Zela in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I ask today that you would speak to us from those words, and I confess my own ignorance and lack of understanding, and I pray that your spirit will work through me and give me the words that I need to be able to speak them and that we might all understand what it is you want us to learn from this particular passage we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, welcome to what is probably the hardest passage in First and Second Samuel to, to interpret and understand. And I would confess to you, when I read this, I thought like, no. Nah. <laughs> What's the next passage? Thanks very much. I'm not going to try and, and, and explain what this passage means because I haven't got the foggiest what it means. It's just too jolly hard. But, I had, well, whilst I had no intention to preach on it whatsoever, if some days back Ellen and I were going for a walk and, and Ellen would be reading ahead of where I was preaching through 2 Samuel. And she, said, she says, Martin, what does this passage mean? And I'm going like, I don't know. <laughs> Go ask someone who understands. But I thought like, oh, okay, well, maybe I do need to explore this passage and, and see what it means. What does it say for us? Where's the gospel in this passage? Because I really can't find it. You know, on, on, on first reading, this is for, for, for people in ancient times, this is probably a very straightforward thing when you read this passage. But for us, this passage is just a glaring affront to every single human right we can think of. Our sensibilities are assaulted as we hear about children and grandchildren of Saul being killed for Saul's sin. We're horrified as we hear about David allowing the Gibeonites to, to impale or whatever they did to kill these seven children of Saul. Our pity is stirred up to anger when we, we read about the mourning of Rizpah. And, and we're finally bamboozled when God seems to accept all of this and responds by sending rain. How on earth do we understand that as Christians? Where's the gospel in this particular story? Well, let me say to you, I don't think we're going to find neat and tidy answers this morning as we look at a text like this. I will do my very best to explain to you some things that I think are necessary that we can understand. But I really think that the main point of this chapter the main point of this passage of Scripture is to disturb you. It should make you frightened. It should make you wonder, how do I stand in my relationship with God? If this passage put the fear of God into you, good. If it makes you tremble at the power and the glory of God, even better. And remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I want us this morning to understand the incredible seriousness of sin, and the goriness of atonement. And I think those are the two things that will be lingering impressions. This is a horrible passage of Scripture, and it needs to be, it should be, and it should make an impression on your heart. Now, it's important as we, we look at this, and my goodness, I've read commentaries on this that were less than helpful. I listened to other pastors as they preached on this passage. Most of them don't. Some made a very nice Mother's Day message out of the bit about Rizpah, but it was very depressing as far as I was concerned. So how are we going to understand this passage of Scripture? I think the first thing we need to note is that this story of Scripture is not intended to be read chronologically. We've been working our way chronologically through the book of, of, second, of First and Second Samuel, but this passage doesn't fit. It's not the next thing in the timeline. It's just a story that's plonked in there to help us to make us think. And because we, we read, if we read it chronologically, what we've read, read here is the, the rebellion of Sheba. Remember we talked about him last week? The rebellion he had. He hated David and he wanted to get rid of David and all that sort of stuff. He was really cranky with David for some reason because he was part of Saul's household. Remember that? Okay, well, let's, 
it doesn't make sense. If it's in, the, if it's in chronological, this, this passage just doesn't make sense. So let's have a look at the passage. Open your Bible if you would. 2 Samuel, chapter 21. Let's look at verse 1. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his bloodstained house, it is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Okay, verse 1 begins talking about a famine in the days of David. Now, apart from the fact that we know that this, is, this happened sometime after the restoration of Mephibosheth, because in verse 7 he's talked about there, we can place this event sometime after Samuel chapter 9. And so I think it might help us understand. Remember the story about Shimei, Shimei who was throwing stones at David? He said, you man of blood. It didn't make sense. But if, it's, if this, this passage occurred before that event, it starts to make sense. Why was he so cranky at David? Why did he say David was a man of blood? Why did he say you've killed Saul's household? Ah, if you read this passage first, you go like, oh, it makes sense. But we didn't, did we? We're only coming up to it now. So this might, might shed some, some light onto why this man was so cranky with David when he was fleeing from Absalom. So the events of this passage might occur somewhere between Samuel 19 and 16. I know that doesn't matter much to you, but it does matter a lot to me. I'm trying to put it back in its order. Well, let's have a look at it. This, the first one gives us the, the situation. This is, this is all about Saul's sin and David's prayer. It seems that it took three years for David to work out that this famine might have some kind of supernatural cause. So he does the obvious thing and he asks God. But we need to understand this a little bit further. As I read this passage, I think what's going on here is that there's evidence that God keeps a record of the sins that you and I overlook. Sins have to be punished or forgiven. Sins cannot be overlooked and completely forgotten about. Someone has to pay for sins that are committed. That's why Jesus came, didn't he? We know that. And a considerable portion of the Bible is dedicated to showing us that sin bears a price tag. The price tag, well, it's explained in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Yeah? You understand that? Well, let's go back to our story. Seasons have come, seasons have gone, perhaps years have passed, but neither the passing of time nor the passing of Saul has lessened the anger of God against the sins of Saul that he committed against this forgotten people called the Gibeonites, whoever they might be. Time for application. Let's have an application right now. Apply this to yourself for the moment. I'm not talking this morning about the sins which for which you have been forgiven. I'm talking about sins that we've swept under the rug. And I bet you've all got some. We cannot sin and then go on as if we'd never done anything wrong. And we can't just go on hoping that they'll go away and no one's ever going to remember our sin. If we've never stopped, if we've never apologised, if we've never made an attempt at restitution, we can't pretend that our sins have never happened. Maybe we've forgotten, but God hasn't. That frightens me. Because I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff that I've forgotten about that God remembers. Matthew Henry, 400 years ago, wrote these words. He says, Time does not wear out the guilt of sin, nor can we build hopes of escape upon the delay of judgments. 
In vain do we expect mercy from God unless we do justice upon our sins. Puts the wind up me. That really does. Because I'm now thinking about what have I swept under the carpet that I've hoped no one's noticed that I might just have forgotten about feel like I've gotten away with it. We have to settle accounts with regard to our sins. God is gracious, God is compassionate, God is forgiving. But if we assume that he will overlook unconfessed or unrepented sin, I believe that is a grave error. Our sins will revisit us. Scripture tells us clearly that they will find us out. Let me take it from a preacher's perspective for a moment. And you can probably all think about some famous evangelist or other who was destroyed by a phone call or a knock on the door, some old sin that was catching up on them. And I'm not talking about sins they committed before they became Christians. I'm talking about indiscretions that they committed after they became Christians and their ministry was destroyed. Yeah? Those things happen to big public people. They happen to little, public, little less public people as well. It might be in the past... But the sin was never addressed. And God brings those things off the back burner and he puts them on the front burner at some stage. And it's clear that scripture says that we need to confess our sins and repent of them. We need to settle our accounts with God. Otherwise, this cycle of sin will go on. Now, back to the passage again for a moment. First place, I want to say something about the fact that there is famine. And how does that famine relate to the land of Israel? This is an Old Testament passage, okay? So the pas in this passage, David is still functioning under the conditions of the covenant, the agreement, the treaty that God made with Moses. And God deals with, in with Israel under that covenant, under conditional terms. If you do certain things, God's going to do certain things, right? If Israel is obedient, they'll receive rain. But if they sin, they'll receive famine, drought. Now, in general, all natural disasters are related to the fall. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3? And sin. But in particular in Israel, as we read the Old Testament, the blessing and the cursing of the land are directly related to the holiness and the sin of Israel. Now, I know, and I'll bring it back to our situation for a moment, we are suffering a drought at the moment, aren't we? Our nation is very far from God. But before we come to jump to conclusions, let me point this out. We are no longer Old Testament Israel. Okay? And we can no longer directly trace every disaster back to a particular sin. I don't think it works that way anymore. Though, it's certainly the drought is certainly due to the fall and the general state of humanity and the impact of the fall on all of creation. What happens here, though, back to the story again, is David somehow receives a reply from God. And so we see here that on account of Saul's genocide against the Gibeonites, God was judging Israel. Now you ask me, who are the Gibeonites? I'm glad you asked me that question. In Joshua chapter 9, we've got to go back in history a little bit for a while to understand what this is all about. Back in Joshua chapter 9, Joshua is leading the people of, of Israel through the land of Canaan and he's clearing the land of all the people that used to live there before. Now, 
He has to do this because God has commanded it first of all. And he has to do it because all, none of these people worship God. And if they are allowed to stay there, they will become a distraction and a thorn in the side for Israel. And they'll make Israel you know, deviate from their worship of God. So God says, clear the land. Make it all clear. No one else there besides you lot. You're going to be my people, my special people. But in Joshua chapter 9, there's an Amorite tribe. And what they do is they trick Israel into thinking they come from a far off land. So look, we come from far away. You don't need to kill us. Make a deal with us instead. Turns out they're actually next door neighbours. But they didn't know that at the time. So they trick Israel into making peace with them. And Israel makes peace and swears in God's name that they will not hurt these people. So they make this treaty with the Gibeonites. And we see that because of a, of a covenant, a treaty made in God's name, they would not attack the Gibeonites even when they discover they've been deceived. Listen to what it says. The elders of, of, of Israel, they're getting together and say, hang on, these blokes tricked us. Should we get out and wipe them out because they tricked us? This is what the elders say. They say, no, we have, made, we have given them an oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall upon us for breaking the oath we swore to them. So Israel had made an oath had sworn an oath in the name of God they were not going to destroy the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites were now safe because of this treaty that had been made in God's name. Saul comes along and he starts slaughtering Gibeonites. And what fascinates me here is that the famine upon Israel was not because of genocide, which is what he was doing, but it was because Saul, as the king of Israel, broke the covenant that was made in God's name. Saul, who did not get rid of the Amalekites when God says to him, I want you to destroy the Amalekites, God, Saul didn't do that. And because of that, he lost his kingdom. That's when God said, right, you're going to be rejected when you don't do what I tell you. Well, I think Saul might have been compensating. He knew he didn't destroy the Amalekites. So he said, oh, well, look, the Gibeonites will get rid of them instead. He's very jealous about this. But he's attempting to wipe out a people who are now protected by a treaty that had been made in the name of God. So Saul might have been trying to impress God, but it was a misdirected zeal. In fact, verse 2 speaks of Saul's zeal for Israel and Judah. And there's a strong warning here for each one of us. Being zealous does not always mean that God is going to approve of you. How many zealous things have been done by churches and the church over the years? Yeah, and God hasn't approved. So let's consider what's happening here. There's a three-year famine because of a broken promise. Now, does that sound a bit like overkill to you? Well, let me be clear that it's not merely the case of breaking a promise, nor is it merely a matter of breaking a personal covenant. This is the case of a national covenant and a treaty in God's name being broken. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11, it says this, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will, hold not, will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. That's the third of the Ten Commandments. Now, don't take God's name in vain. Right? That's what it's all about. You see, in Old Testament Israel, 
God's name was the legal power that you bound yourself by when you made a formal agreement. A peace treaty between nations was made in God's name. A marriage covenant was made in God's name. A business deal was closed in God's name. All of these, th these things were done by taking an oath in God's name. And your fear of God was considered to be the strongest motivation in life. And to make a promise in God's name and then break that promise was extremely serious. Because if you do that, you're saying, oh, God is not to be feared. God is not just. God doesn't punish me. He doesn't care if I break the promises I made in his name. And on top of that, you actually deceive other people and you use God and you use God's credibility to get your own name, get your own way. So it's very deceptive. You see, what God desires, what God desires is a society that is regulated by people who keep their promises, and He gives them His name as the highest motivation to make sure that people keep their promises. Because when we break covenant in His name, we're not only lying, we're actually blaspheming the name of God. That's how big this whole thing is. And in this particular instance, God will not tolerate his name to be internationally disdained, which is exactly what's happening. And God sought to put, his display, to, to put on display his glory through the people of Israel. When they were, ho were, were holy and they followed his wise laws and prospered, the other nations would say, there is a God in Israel. And he's the true God. But here's the first king of Israel, Saul, the number one representative of God in the nation, taking God's name in vain. And the consequences for this sin are so widespread because the slander of God has become widespread as well. Okay, let's stop there for a second. I need a drink of water. But let's apply this to ourselves for a moment. You and me. Our view of God's glory is way too light. We do not honour God's name as we ought to honour God's name. Let's not forget the first petition in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We pray it every Sunday. So from taking his name in vain to, to keeping promises in his name and including how we represent him to, 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 to his people... We need to seek to do justice to the glory of God in every single thing that we do. Because when we break promises, it's not only you and me who gets dishonored, it's Almighty God who's dishonored. Our view of God's glory is too light. We are Christians. We should be people of our word. Put our hand on the Bible. Make a promise. Why do you do that? Because you know that you'll be judged by God if you break the promise. All right, that's part of verse 1. That's the famine. Let's have a look at the other part of verse 1, which talks about blood guilt and talks about Saul's blood-stained house. In the nation of Israel, the land was considered holy. The land was considered holy because God was living with his people. And the injustice of breaking a covenant in God's name was an imperfection that needed addressing. And this incurred a debt that had to be repaid. And had a lingering effect because of the severity of the crime. In Israel, in the Old Testament, even cases of unsolved murders were, were solved by the elders of the town 
They settled the blood debt by making a sacrifice. They killed something. That shows you the seriousness of crime, the seriousness of sin. Now, you and I know that murder is a violation of the image of God. It's an act against God as well as against man. But for us today, we don't have any ceremonial way for dealing with this. We don't do things like we did in the Old Testament. Though, our friends who are going to New Guinea and places like that, tribal people, they still make sacrifice in order to satisfy and appease blood debt. Guilt has to be paid for some way. And there's sacrifice that has to be made. So in the Old Testament, there were concrete ways of showing the nature of our sin and the incredible guilt. If you sin, blood guilt. Something has to die. Blood has been shed by the breaking of covenant in God's name. And the only way blood guilt can be paid is through the shedding of blood. That's verse 1, by the way. We're just, we'll, get, we'll go a bit faster as we go. Understand that. There was famine, and because of the famine, there was blood guilt. Now we move on to verses 2 to, two to 9. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make amends that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have any right to put anyone to death in Israel. What do you want me to do for you? David asks. They answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I'll give them to you. The king spares Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni, and Mephibosheth, not the Mephibosheth, we know another one, the two sons of Aiah's daughter Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Moahoalite, and he handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed them on the hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together and put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Now what do we make of this? Well, here are a few thoughts. It's horrible. Yeah, amen. That's kind of summarizes the whole deal, doesn't it? First of all, we've got to reject some views that have been taken. Some, some of the commentators thought like, oh, this is some sort of Davidic fabrication, right? David made this whole deal up so they could get rid of Saul's family and get rid of the, any opposition that they might eventually put up to his being king. And I think that that is an unsympathetic reading of the text. It doesn't do justice to the stated intention of this text. It's imposition on it all. And we also need to reject the idea that, that David was capitulating to a group of people who are still pagans. Mainly because it's God who raises the whole issue and gives rain in the response. Second thing I want to say about this is we need to put away our Western way of thinking for a moment. Because as Westerners, we always think individually. You know, if you did something, you should pay the penalty. That's the way it works. Isn't it? That's the law. Yeah, That's Western thinking. We need to think more corporately at the, mo at the moment. 
Okay? The Bible is full of corporate consequences as the result of one man's actions. Think for a moment. Adam and his sin. Who are sinners as a result of that? Every single living being since then, apart from Jesus. There's a curse on the whole of the human race. In fact, it's even wider. There's a curse on the whole of creation because of one man. That's corporate, the corporate effect of sin. There are also corporate blessings. Abraham and his faith and his righteousness blessed the whole of Israel. Noah and his family were saved because Noah was righteous. And you and I are righteous. Why? Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. That's the corporate effect of his righteousness blesses you and me. But sin can work the same way as well. So I need to stress here that, that Saul, Saul is a king who holds a representative office. And his sons would inherit the throne from him. So this is a case of national sin because Saul was representative of the nation. And the consequences are also national do you remember that Israel, the nation of Israel went into exile because of their sin? But not all of Israel was sinful. But the whole nation suffered the consequence. So we need to distinguish this event here from the usual rule of law in personal cases. We're thinking corporately here at the moment. Now it has been suggested that Saul's, <coughs> Saul's sons may have been involved in the genocide. Well, there are only two of Saul's sons that got killed here. The others were Saul's grandsons. So I doubt that the grandsons would have been involved in the genocide. So I don't think that gives a satisfactory answer. But let me be very calloused for a moment. Seven of these blokes die. Well, let's face it, all people deserve to die, don't they? Well, that's what the Bible says. Yeah. All people deserve to die, and the demonstration of the glory of God's name and the sinfulness of dishonoring him in the death of seven is particularly fitting because lots of Gibeonites have been killed, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know. But seven, the number seven in Scripture is important. It's seen as the number of completion. So many Gibeonites have been killed by Saul, but they considered seven of Saul's household as sufficient to pay the whole blood guilt. These men's lives are in fact already forfeit because on account of sin they're under the Adam's sin scarily I'm under Adam's sin too so the penalty of death is on my head as well okay let's move on a bit although it says in verse 14 that and after these guys have been killed God answered prayer on behalf of the land now this is difficult to really really difficult for me to understand and put it into perspective but oftentimes God would accommodate things happening he doesn't approve of it, but he accommodates it. And this might have been a case of God accommodating something dreadful happening, but not necessarily approving the whole deal. And in the Old Testament, God overlooked many imperfections without approving of them. And this might be one of those situations in this particular story. But the sixth thing I want to say about this is that, that though we don't have all the information that we would like to answer our questions, this doesn't give us a right now to accuse God and say, oh, God is pretty wicked. We don't have all the information and we can't misappropriate the information that's given to imply that we can accuse God of being a bad God because it allows this to happen. We need to refuse to draw wrong conclusions. We still have lots of teaching in Scripture about God's nature and His justice in the Bible. 
So remember, this is a difficult text I'm trying to explain to you this morning. I can't build doctrine from difficult texts. Okay? However, I found something really exciting as I was studying this passage. Would you please look at with me at verse number 7? The detail of this is wonderful. Okay, remember now that the 7 has to be handed over. Verse 7. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. What's going on here? There's a wonderful contrast. There's Saul who breaks oaths and covenants. And there's David who keeps vows and covenants to the honour of God's name. The two contrasts are there in this passage. However, what I see most wonderfully is the protection the wonderful protection that a covenant or an oath or a treaty makes. Here's where I see the gospel at last. I was looking for the, where's the gospel in this passage? Here it is. You and I are like the sons of Saul. We are guilty in Adam and in ourselves for our sinfulness. And if justice were to come for us today, we would deserve to die. Why? Because God's command is that we be holy as he is holy, and are you holy in yourself as God is holy? The only answer we can give is no. In Christ I am, but not in myself. However, God has made a covenant with his son to save a people. Just like David made a covenant with Saul's son, Jonathan, to save his offspring. And now, brothers and sisters, there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God. You and I are spared on the basis of God's own faithfulness to the promise to fulfill his love to a people he loved in Christ before creation. Praise God for his faithfulness. It's there in the Bible. I finally found it. I thought, ah, I can hang something on this passage. So let's move on a little bit further. Let's move along to chapter to, to verses 10 to 14. This is the story now of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, who take, who's the mother of, of two of the men that are killed. So this is Rizpah's mourning. We are told this, this moving story of how this woman who braves the elements, she spends night and day protecting the bodies of her dead loved ones until the rain falls. Something interesting going on here. Notice, notice that the bodies were not buried on the same day that these people were killed. Ordinarily, in order to avoid, avoid defiling the land, the dead sinner would be buried immediately. But this is no ordinary circumstance. The sin of the land is now held up for public view, and especially through the mourning of this mother. This account, it pulls on your heartstrings. And maybe it sheds some light as to, to why there was such strong anti-David sentiment from Shimei and Sheba. However, we need to also allow it to serve another purpose. We need to, to allow this chapter to remind us about the seriousness of sin and the incredible bloody mess that happens when sin is dealt with. Remember Jesus, his death was gory. It was horrible. You've seen the Jesus film, you know, the... The, the one that uh, Mel Gibson put together, I can't watch it without bawling my eyes out. But what? Yeah, the passion of the Christ, thank you. That's what Jesus did. That's the suffering he went through to make us one with God. We need to see suffering in this passage. We need to see pain. We need to see mourning and grieving. 
It's interesting that even today, there are many people who reject the death of Jesus in our place, and they say it's just divine child abuse. I had the opportunity to give a series of seminars at Rimba University on comparative religion. When I explained Christianity and the sacrifice, one woman stood up in the, in the, in the group of students who were there and said, I'm not listening to this rubbish. Divine child abuse, that's what it is. Rubbish. And she rejected the message that I was presenting. These people are offended by, by the cross. They can't see how sin could be paid for in such a fashion. But when we ponder the mystery of the most innocent man on earth dying on the cross for our sins, you're silenced. What a penalty, what a price has been paid for your sin and for mine. This is a hard chapter that we're looking at. But it's also a useful chapter to remember the seriousness of our sin and the bloodiness of the atonement of Jesus. But let's look back at Rizpah for a moment. Rizpah stands as a testimony to faithful and enduring love. She's one of former King Saul's concubines. She's born him two sons. And her sons are now dead because of Saul and what he did. And now Rizpah was on a hillside outside of Gibeah. And if the scripture interpreted these events correctly, her watch over the bodies of her sons might have lasted for up to six months. Verse 10 says, From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. There's a message in there which is brighter than the gloom of this tragedy. Something greater than Saul's crimes kept Rizpah in this lonely vigil on the rock that was there. The great theme underlying this story is the love that she has, the love that prompts her deeds. She's not allowed to move the bodies of her dead sons, but she could keep the buzzards and the jackals away. Rizpah's vigil reminds us that love has no limits. It reaches beyond the boundaries of this life. It extends beyond the grave. Death could not diminish her love. Though her boys were grown men and they were now dead, they'd been slaughtered. Though her, their bodies were left hanging as a sign of contempt and condemnation, she still loves them. And that's the way it is with love. When you love someone, distance is no barrier. Time is no deterrent. Even death cannot dampen the flame of love. We understand that love reaches beyond the grave. We still love people who are no longer with us. We have love for, the, for those that have passed. We still love them just as much as if they were walking the earth with us right now. That's a wonderful truth. Love endures all things. But what does Rizpah show us about Does God care if we suffer because of another person's sins? Well, there's this wonderful passage in the Psalms. Psalm 116 verse 15 says this. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Brothers and sisters, I can't explain this passage. But all I can say is that God knows, God watches, and God cares. He does. In that way, Rizpah reflects to us the heart of God. Today I can't make a neat and tidy kind of a message, but what I have gleaned is that God, because of his justice, will not and cannot stop the cycle of the consequences of our sins until they are dealt with, either through confession 
or restitution. Indeed, God cares so much that he would allow his son to pay the full penalty. But that's not a blanket fix-all. What we do and what we have done will affect other people in this life. I want to bring it to a close. What have I learnt from this passage? I've learnt that God keeps a record of the sins we overlook. Begs the question. Are there sins that you've swept under the carpet? The word of God is true. Be sure that your sin will find you out. You can sweep it away. Crawl out from under there one day. God didn't give rain to Israel until the sin had been addressed. And God won't refresh your soul until your sin has been confessed. Deal with it. Also, I've learned that sin affects more than those who commit the sins. Really. My sin can affect my children or my grandchildren or the generation beyond that. I put into, into place a series of events that cannot be stopped. When we are tempted to sin, I hope that we remember the story of Rizpah. Who's affected by the consequences of our sins? A nation had been brought to drought because of sin. Seemingly innocent people had died because of a broken covenant. Rizpah grieved because of the sin of another person. Jesus died because of our sin. He didn't sin, but he paid the penalty. And God watched over it all, and God grieved. Brothers and sisters, this has been a really hard passage to pull apart and to explain to you. But after studying this passage, there's one thing that has happened to me. I fear God more than ever before. And because of my fear of God, I know that I need to keep a short account with God. I love many people. And today I've learned that my sin affects more than just me. Because of that, I've got to keep short accounts with God. Brothers and sisters, let's come before God with repentant hearts and ask him to refresh our spirits. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father... That's been a horrible passage of scripture to look at. But I remember that I'm but flesh and blood. And that my sins and my thoughts, my words, my deeds are so easy to commit. Holiness and righteousness is often so far from my thinking. But Lord, I don't want other people to pay penalties for things that I've done. And I know that your son has paid the penalty in full. So Father, I pray today that your spirit would work in my heart. Show to me the things that I've swept under the carpet. That I might be able to bring them before you in confession and repentance. And be set free completely free of my past because I know that this death of Jesus is sufficient for the sin of the world. He's dealt with it, Lord. But help me to be clean, to walk in holiness and righteousness, that when people see me and see what I do and hear the words that I speak and feel my hand upon them, that they might know that they're in the presence of someone who's filled with the spirit of the living God who's in right relationship with you, who truly can love others 
just as he was loved. Forgive me, Father, but use me, I pray, in Jesus' name.